Hello, everybody. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding roads that guide us around the Delmarva Peninsula. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. So today I decided to look back at newspapers from the area, so Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia, for the week of August 6th. And that's because that was my birthday. Those weeks leading up to that were actually pretty hectic because my son and my husband, as well as myself, we all have birthdays in less than 30 days apart from each other. So, you know, I just thought maybe it would be interesting to take a look back. And it's something that I might do going forward, hopefully, if I have the podcast in years to come, which I do plan on having it in years to come. But that will at least give me a focus for, you know, those weeks or those months, months around that time. The one thing is, though, I'm not going to necessarily choose the year of any of our births. It could be a random year. So that way, I think it will also give us some more insight into how things may have changed. So I went back to the bicentennial year of 1976. um, And I found that Looking at the headlines, there were really a lot of things that I could say the more things change, the more they stay the same. The headlines on some of the newspapers in that week were really heavily focused on this new outbreak of an illness that nobody could really seem to figure out. And this was happening in Philadelphia. And since we're so close to Philadelphia, it was really front page news. And that kind of reminded me of headlines that we may have seen over the past couple of years um, since COVID-19 first started. But we have more updated technology and better ways to communicate than we did back then. And in case you're wondering, that was what um, became known as Legionnaire's disease or Legionella um, that was taking place in 1976 and that originated at a hotel in Philadelphia. So it was, you know, kind of coincidental in some ways, I think. But then I went on to other headlines and there was discussion of student loans and, you know, the cost of college. And this is almost 50 years ago. And, you know, I hear some people today saying, well, college wasn't as expensive as it was back then. Well, true. But then again, You know, nothing was as expensive as it was back then because of a thing called inflation. But they were talking about student loan debt and a lot of the same headlines we see today. Um, Also, there was an article about a prison being sued on behalf of the inmates, which there was a recent case um, in Delaware where something else has happened as well, where inmates are suing um, the state um, Department of Corrections. For actually two different reasons, um, one in one of the correctional institutes and one in another. But I'll have just a little bit of, I guess you'd say, an opinion piece near the end about that. And there was one last article that I had debated on bringing up, but I don't want to get political, so I won't. But given that, you know, I'm on the Marva Peninsula, you may have an idea of you know, maybe who this article was about. Um, So, yeah. Um, (laughs) But all of the sources, as usual, will be linked in the um, notes of the episode if you do want to look at any of the newspapers of the time, um, which, you know, again, I would look through newspapers from Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia. So you might find some other topics you're interested in. But pretty much all of that came from newspapers.com and the newspapers that are available on their site. Because unfortunately, for the case I was looking for today, um, there wasn't anything on the Internet itself about it. And newspapers.com is a pay site. So um, I'll do what I normally do with that case um, is... In the link, I'll actually put the name and date from the newspaper. That way, if you happen to have subscriptions 
um, from those newspapers where you can go back and look through archives. And you'll be able to have access that way so that you'll at least know, you know the date and the newspaper itself. Also, um, while I'm bringing up the episode notes, within the notes, there'll also be links to um, like my email, my Facebook, which is where I'm most active on, even though, especially over the past couple of years, I kind of wanted to stay away from most of social media, but um, you know, I'm usually pretty quick to respond to Messenger and um, you know, things like that if you want to provide any feedback. Um, you know, to subscribe to the podcast itself, if you're, you know, depending on how you're listening, you know, any type of engagement, um, you know, that really does help the podcast as well, as far as algorithms and how different platforms calculate on how to listen um, and bring the podcast up in searches, you know, so the more engagement there is, at least through, you know, the podcast apps and things like that. Um, it will help the podcast grow. And I do also upload this to YouTube, um, even though there's not as much of a video background. But um, when I do upload, there's ways where you can subscribe, like, or leave a comment. That helps as well. Also, in terms of, you know, continuing the podcast and as far as upgrading equipment or keeping those subscription services, there will also be a link to PayPal or Buy Me a Coffee. Um, if you're interested in looking at any of those. But that was leading me to kind of my disclaimer, as usual, um, about the content of the podcast in that, as in most, if not all, episodes, there will be discussion of things which some people may find troubling. Um, in this case, there is a discussion of murder and violence. So just so everyone's aware, um, before we start going into the episode today, and what I think is the most interesting to me is what happens near the end, which I'll go into, of course, at that time, so as not to give too much away, but probably a sense of frustration so much at the end after we reading through different articles, trying to find more information about the victim herself, which there's very little that I could find, so... You know, that leading up to the point at the end was probably my biggest frustration. And, you know, I think you'll understand what the biggest one is then once we come to the conclusion. So with that being said, today we're going to be discussing the murder of Virginia Sart. After first hearing or reading about Virginia Sard and that she had been murdered, I wanted to go back and try to find other information about her. Unfortunately, though, the only bit of information that I could find was um, an announcement of a marriage license. And according to her mother in a later interview, she had been married three times. So I'm not sure if this was um, from which wedding, but it was from 1971. And Virginia was murdered in 1976. So there was that five-year gap between the two events. So normally, you know, looking at the, the marriage certificate and that announcement in the newspaper, it should bring about a feeling of, you know, hope, a new beginning, joy. But just knowing how just a few short laters, really, her life would come to an end, I didn't feel any of that. You know, so things that you would normally look at, you know, as a joyous event, when you know the outcome in such a short time later, it takes all of that away. And I'm just glad that at the time, nobody could have had any inkling or notion that any of that would have happened five short years later. So again, there's very little that we know about Virginia, but we do know that she did have children. On the afternoon of August 4th, 1976, her son reported her missing. He is reported in at least one newspaper as being 11 years old, though later, um, and it was less than a year after these events, he was reported being 14 years old. So it's not clear at exactly how old he was, but either way, 
no child should ever have to come home to what he came home to. So at the time when he came home on that afternoon, he was concerned because there were some clear signs of a struggle. So, you know, no matter how old or young he was, it was very clear that something was wrong. So at that time, he knew he had to get some help. He did then report her as missing, and the police very quickly knew that this was going to be a serious case. There were those signs of struggle that were reported by the son, and later, um, as I was reading, I found out more of a description and that there was blood there as well, which made it very clear that this was not something where she walked out and maybe got injured or had been in an accident. Everything happened here at the house. Quickly, though, a suspect was arrested, and his name was Clinton Waters. He was being held immediately after um, Virginia went missing, and unfortunately, by August 6th, Virginia's body had been found. The Cambridge, Maryland police chief by the name of Russell E. Roten had indicated that they had received the call about a missing person on Wednesday afternoon and had subsequently started an immediate search and had found her on August 5th, which was Thursday. And they had also taken in Clinton Linwood Waters um, of Wolford into the station by then. And he was actually charged with homicide at that time. But as far as actually moving forward, as far as a prosecution, that didn't happen immediately. And there's very good reason for that, because there really wasn't anything to go on other than kind of instinct, for lack of any other term, because there was absolutely no evidence. He wasn't indicted until December of that year of 1976, and the trial was then set for February 28th of 1977. Clinton Waters was held in jail on a $150,000 bond, and you know that was a pretty substantial amount at that time. It's you know, still a pretty substantial amount now, but at that time when the crime here took place, but that would be about the equivalent of $750,000 in today's money. So that's even still a little surprising because for murder, you may think that the bond should be higher, but it was at about 75, or I'm sorry, $750,000 if you look at it in today's terms. So the trial began in Cambridge, which is in Dorchester County, Maryland. And the jury was made up of six men and six women. So at least it was balanced there. But something I found curious is what the prosecutor, who was the Dorchester County State Attorney, Robert Fresnel III, well, he had something to say that I think was rather interesting. He said that he was not going to, quote, present testimony during directly linking the defendant to the beating death of his former lover, end quote, according to the Daily Times. So he was admitting from the very beginning that there's really nothing that we can go on during this trial that really links the defendant to the death of his former girlfriend. He said that right up front. So that was kind of a different take for me. Um, <laughs> But that's what I had kind of been thinking, looking at the newspaper articles, because it really jumped from she was found, then he was arrested, and he's being charged. But there was nothing ever mentioned about any type of evidence. Now, granted, they're not going to put everything in the newspaper. The police aren't going to share every bit of information. But I guess looking at it from today's standards, where... You know, we have updates pretty frequently about, you know, ongoing trials, about what type of evidence that may have been found. 
And, you know, maybe I was looking at it kind of with that take. But right from the beginning, the prosecutor says, yeah, we don't really have anything that will connect him. So we move forward then with, you know, how the trial is going to proceed. He also said that, quote, this is a murder with neither confession or eyewitness, end quote. So he's just continuing to kind of let the jury know we pretty much don't have anything. Now, as we still see in many cases, sometimes a conviction or an acquittal, it all comes down to circumstantial evidence. When someone's found guilty, it's because that amount of circumstantial evidence just cannot be overcome, that there's just too many coincidences, too much evidence that will kind of connect all the dots where you cannot say that you have a reasonable doubt and therefore you convict. And then in terms of acquittal, there's just not enough circumstantial evidence um, to take that reasonable doubt away. But Mr. Fornell said he wanted to present evidence that would lead to the only possible conclusion. And that was the conclusion that Clinton Waters had killed his girlfriend. And he had 30 witnesses to testify for him. However, Ernest Broughton, who was Clinton Waters' attorney, he opted not to make an opening statement at the beginning of the trial. He decided to hold off until after the prosecution had rested and he was about to present his case. And it's really their option to choose when to give an opening argument. Now, on the first day of testimony, there were two people, and these were two teenagers who had found Virginia's body, and they gave testimony. And this may have just been to kind of, you know, set the timeline of events as to when she was found. Um, She wasn't found in an actual search. These were just two two teenagers who came across her body. Um, Virginia's mother also testified, as well as her son, and... Edna said that, you know, she thought that her her daughter Virginia and Waters had gotten along fine, you know, so it, to me, that was kind of surprising because sometimes you'll hear a mother say there was always some type, you know, of argument going on or the relationship was tumultuous, but, you know, that wasn't the case here. And the young child, whether he be 11 or 14, had to give testimony, um, you know, about what he went through that day and about how he found his mother missing. Now, more evidence was presented um, as far as what was found at the house. And besides the obvious signs of the struggle, there was one ceramic item that was found to be broken that had hair and blood on it. So even with knowing there was blood there, we have now information that with the hair on it, it sounds like she was hit over the head. This was found actually in the backyard, though, and had at one time been part of a ceramic pickle crock. So I'm going to assume possibly because I I don't remember seeing a pickle, but sometimes some of my family members, they have these pots where you could put like stews or casseroles or something to serve them in that were shaped like different objects. So I'm going to kind of think that's what it was. So that was kind of interesting. Um, But that was found in the backyard and that showed she had a head injury most likely. We do also find out just a little bit more about the relationship that Virginia had with Clinton And they had been together for about three years total. They had known each other um, for about three years. And they had dated and had lived together for approximately a year, but had broken up approximately um, a few months before the murder. Edna Sard, again, that's Virginia's mother, reiterated she thought that the two had gotten along fine. So, you know, this was probably incomprehensible. To the family, having a murder happen in any family would be incomprehensible. But to find out it's someone that you knew and that you thought had a good relationship with your daughter, that had to be even more shocking. 
So then it was time for some of the police officers and officials to testify. Looking at this, you know, again, from today's standards, this whole trial would seem kind of dubious. Between not having any evidence, pretty much as said by the prosecutor at the beginning, um, and now with DNA and other forensic testing that we know today, we would probably be looking at this saying, why is this even at trial at this point? But to kind of add on to this, um, the police officers, among some other testimony, said that they may not have done the best job with the crime scene, saying that mistakes had been made. So this is just kind of another strike here that if I happened to be on the jury, I would be kind of questioning the whole thing right now. Um, the chief investigating officer for the case um, said that they found 111 fingerprints in Virginia Sard's home. And of those 111 fingerprints, only one set belonged to Clinton. And what would throw an additional wrench into the works here is that, for one thing, besides the inconsistency when they said they found 111 fingerprints, from her home was the fact that actually the one set that were found to be Clinton's were actually on her car, not in the home. So you even theoretically, he could have said, I stopped by, we talked out by the car, I leaned against it, I touched it. I mean, there's so many different things you could think about that. Um, but they were not actually found in the house. And that might seem like a minor point, but, you know, depending on what type of search warrant, if any had to be gained, um, you would have to question whether or not they could actually even search the car for fingerprints. Maybe I'm being too analytical there. But truly, about the only ties that the state attorney for now could provide was that even though Clinton Waters had said that he'd been home at around 11.30 p.m., on the night before Virginia went missing, some people testified that they saw him on the road where eventually her body had been found. The prosecution maintained and argued that he was seen there because he wanted to move Virginia's body further out of the way and back into the woods. So basically, he was saying that um, Clinton Waters had attacked Virginia. She was dead. He had hit her body. But as people were searching, he decided he needed to go back and, you know, pull her body further into the woods. Waters' defense countered with that, no, he had just been visiting a friend at the time. And while admitting to hitting your partner does not necessarily mean that you will go on to murder them, Clinton Waters did admit under um, both his testimony and during interviews that he had slapped Virginia before. So one could look at this in one of two ways. It could seem like he's being an honest man who lost his temper once and hit her, but he's being straightforward and honest and saying that even though there's no excuse for someone to hit someone when they argue that, yes, he had done it. Or... It could possibly make him seem like someone who doesn't have a hold of their temper and may let it get out of control and it could lead to violence. So, you know, when you're sitting on the jury, you know, they could look at it at one as one of those two different things and you never know, you know, what may have actually happened in the instance where he admitted to hitting her. And... Here ends really a lot of the available information on the trial. The next piece of information that I could find was that the jury had started to deliberate. They deliberated for seven hours, which if you look at some high profile cases, they may deliberate for even longer before they come up with a verdict. But in this case, after seven hours, the judge realized by what the jury was saying and upon the insistence of the jury foreman that they were hopelessly deadlocked. There was absolutely 
no way that they were going to be able to come up with a decision. And I really can understand why, um, you know, to some people having that admission that he had hit her before, that some people said he was seen on the road um, in the area. And he said that, you know, he didn't really have an alibi and had actually said he was home. Okay, you know, there's a change in his story when he then said, well, I was visiting a friend. That could be enough. But that was really all there was. There was a clear lack of any type of forensic evidence because the fingerprints really didn't mean anything either. It would have been one thing if they had been found on the inside of the shattered ceramic piece or even on any larger piece that didn't even have blood on it. But it was the fingerprints were nowhere. Um, it might have been unusual to find them on her car after um, they had broken up. And according to the mother's testimony, it had been a few months. But that might not even be that unusual if they had a friendly relationship. It just shows that, you know, he may have stopped by. So as I was reading through everything for the first time, I really had a feeling there would be a mistrial in the trial itself, um, just based on the expectations I have of today's forensics. And even after I stepped back and said, you know, this was in the 1970s, um, you know, there really wasn't CODIS, um, you know, or APHIS, and those are, you know, indexes for DNA and fingerprints. They didn't have any of those databases that you could run something through or test you know, after you tested them and try to find a match. You know, a lot of this was non-computerized. Um, computers were very, you know, lumbersome back then, and I don't really believe a lot of places were using them. Um, so, you know, the, there really wasn't a lot of forensics, but at the same time, given you know, that this was in the 1970s, there really wouldn't have been as many forensic pieces of evidence as we would expect today. But the prosecutor was quick to announce that he was not done with this case. He was going to retry Clinton Waters for this murder. He sounded like he felt, felt very strongly about the case. Now, even though Waters had already spent some time in jail at this point, um, the defense now wanted to set forth a motion that he be allowed out while seeking the retrial because, you know, he'd already gone, gone through one trial to ask him to sit in jail for even longer. You know, that would really be an injustice to him. And, you know, I can see that too in that he wasn't found guilty. So the... You know, defense even wanted to have the charges dropped, which, again, I can even understand that. But Mr. Fornell was not hearing that. Um, he even stated, though, some of the police in their testimony admitted that, you know, they hadn't done such a great job. Mr. Fornell thought that they had done, you know, a wonderful job throughout the investigation. So he had a lot of faith in the the little evidence he did have um, as far as you know, going forward and having a second trial. So as this case had been in the media as it was then, you know, it's not like the social media or YouTube or anything that we have today, but, you know, since it was pretty well known in the area, the defense motion to have the trial changed to another venue for the retrial. So it was decided that the trial would move from Dorchester County to Somerset County. And there was a new date set for the trial, and that was to be June 6th of 1977. But soon it was announced that the June 6th date would need to be delayed. This was announced in May, and this was because that there were some appeals filed. So they actually moved the trial date to July 26th. Um, the, the delay initially was for an appeal that was filed on the grounds of double jeopardy. Now, double jeopardy is just kind of informally known as 
has the concept or rule that you cannot be tried twice for the same offense. The wording, I agree, is really kind of misleading because you can be tried twice for the same offense. You can be tried multiple times in cases of a mistrial. If the original verdict is overturned, you can, um, if the original verdict was guilty and you win another appeal, then you can um, you have that overturned and have to go through another trial. So there are different reasons why you may be able to be tried twice, but you cannot be acquitted and then tried again. Um, a couple little side notes there. One is I have heard some countries where they're actually abolishing that. And there's a case in Australia that I've kind of followed where I really don't believe the person did it, but he just keeps, they keep retrying him. And even though he's been acquitted every time, they just, they've actually been able to, with some of the, um, the changes, they've been able to retry him a number of times. Um, secondly, in regards to that is there is a case where there actually was, um, double jeopardy that they were able to get around because the person had served in the military, wasn't, in active duty, so he could be recalled at any point. And when he was acquitted in civilian court, even though the crime had not taken place on military grounds or anything like that, he wasn't even actively serving at that time. They actually recalled him to service, then tried him in military court. So um, that was very controversial. But getting back to our case here, you know, I can understand why double jeopardy is attached. It may sometimes seem really unfair when it seems like a person definitely did it. Maybe there was just one piece of evidence that was missing. Or if later on the person actually confesses, knowing they can't be tried again, that is a true injustice. But then there are other times where what if a person truly was innocent, the jury made the 100% correct call, and you know, what if that person had to look over their shoulder for the rest of their lives, knowing that they could be retried at any time? So the reason behind double jeopardy is very understandable. But in this case, I guess they were taking it truly at the letter of the law in that you cannot be tried twice when we see in so many cases when there's a mistrial or one of, you know, a few different types of occurrences where a person can be tried again. So while the appeal was ongoing on those grounds, um, the judge did say that bond could be reduced and that um, was reduced from $150,000 to $25,000, which is about $126,000 in 2023. So it's still, you know, a substantial amount of money, but when looking at a murder case, it may seem, you know, like a pretty small amount. So the July 26th date was approaching, but it was found that could not be met either as um, the actual... Uh, special Appeals Court was in summer recess. I don't understand why that wasn't figured out, you know, sooner, and why they even set a court date for July 26th if there was, you know, a possibility that they would not be able to review the um, case, and you know, that's what happened. The Appeals Court was not able to review the case before they went into recess, so it was then moved forward to November of 1977. But no, no. The attorney filed also an appeal on the grounds that Mr. Waters' civil rights had been violated because he did not have a speedy trial. So between both of these appeals, um, you know, being tried twice, double jeopardy, um, you know, the speedy trial, all of that. We were now going to exactly one year from the date of the original trial. 
So the original original trial started February 28th, 1977. On February 28th, 1978, the second trial was due to begin. However, as with many cases, the first day really is just sent, spent um, picking out a jury. But once again, the trial was not to be. But maybe not for the reasons that you expect. And nor did I. Clinton Waters took a plea deal. So I'm going to have to be pretty careful with my wording here um, based on the terminology used at that time. He did not admit that he had done the crime, that he had committed the murder, but he took the plea deal. Today, it really sounds like to me an Alford plea, which is something that we hear about you know, more and more often where a person who's been charged with a crime will basically admit that, okay, I realize that there's, you know, more evidence here. I'm probably going to be convicted, but I am not going to plead guilty and say that I did it. So that's what Clinton Waters took. And as I read that, I had to question, you know, why? If you're someone who's innocent of a murder, why would you at least take a plea for something as serious as second-degree murder, especially on evidence that, in what my opinion was, seemed pretty flimsy. Well, when we get to sentencing, I now see why he took the deal. He was given three years for second-degree murder. So it's like, oh, so he could potentially be, um, you know, facing a much, much longer sentence or he can get three years. Okay, he might not want to you know, have to wait with pretty much this sword dangling over his head and worry about whether or not he'll be convicted, about going back to trial, that he just wants it over and he'll serve his three years. But he'd already served nine months while he was awaiting the original trial. So, and I'm sorry, I should add, after... The original trial ended, and before he could be released on bond again, he had served a total of nine months. At the time in the state of Maryland, you could be eligible for parole after serving only 25% of your sentence. So this means pretty much Waters was eligible for parole almost as soon as he was convicted. So pretty quickly, they had him processed into um, the correction system into the prison system. And the reason for that was because for the whole process of parole and applying for parole to begin, he actually had to be processed into the system. And then they could start working on everything. And um, from one article that I read, it said that could be in as short as 30 days. However, that's pretty much where it ended. I searched through information after 1980, you know, because I kind of first limited my search through the 1970s, then looking forward through 1980 and forward, I could not find anything more about whether or not he was paroled or not. I know a lot of cases, um, you know, especially if they're more well-known than, you know, there'll be write-ups in the newspaper or on the news that someone has been paroled from prison, but I couldn't find anything on this case. Um, his attorney was looking also at the fact that prior to this, he had no other convictions on his record you know, of any kind. So his attorney really expected him to be paroled almost immediately. And just one of my thoughts as well is I wondered if the parole board would kind of look at the fact that there really wasn't evidence and he never admitted his guilt, you know, if they would question it, you know, as far as whether or not he even did the crime. On the other hand, it, since he never admitted it, they could be thinking, well, he's never accepted responsibility, so why should we let him go early? Again, there's kind of, you know, the double-edged sword there. So I did, you know, like I said, I tried to find information further on from 1980 
um, through newspapers.com. I'd also been searching for Virginia's name um, through you know, internet databases, just you know, your normal Google search, and really couldn't find anything on her. Um, additionally, too, when you're searching for the name Virginia and you're scouring through Delmarva newspapers, it's sometimes very difficult um, to do so because there were probably hundreds of other articles that came up that didn't have anything to do with the case. And even though I you know, made a search where her name had to appear in the same article, um, sometimes there would still be things that popped up that had nothing to do with the case. So I decided, okay, I've been searching for Virginia. Let's see if there's anything more I could find out about Clinton. The only thing I found was someone by the name, um, with the same name, including the same middle name, which was Linwood, which is very distinct to me, um, who passed away at the age of 74 in the year 2015. The age did match as well as the obituary that I found. Um, the gentleman had died at the age of 74, and you know, doing the math, since he was 35 in 1976, he would have been born... You know, depending on when his birth date was, probably around 1941, um, which would have put him at about 74 in 2015. So, you know, it's it's got to be almost too coincidental if there was another man with the same full name that was the same age. So... I'm pretty confident that it's the same person, but I will not say 100% that it is just because it, of course, there was nothing mentioned in the obituary about this case because, you know, so many years later, you know, who wants to bring that up in an obituary? Um, you know, and especially too in the obituary that I read, he seemed like a very active member of the community. And I have to wonder, too, if, you know, possibly some of the people that he worked with didn't necessarily know, you know, if it was the same person in the obituary, you know, of the history, you know, and if he only served, say, three years, even at the max, um, he would have been out in the early 1980s, which would have been 34 years before he passed away. So... You know, again, I have to say for disclaimers that I cannot say 100% sure that it's the same person, but there are a lot of similarities. And given the you know, activity he had in the community afterwards, if he was the murderer, since he never admitted guilt, I'm glad that he was able to turn his life around, but was three years enough? And I think that's really, to me, the hardest thing to really understand about the case. I know there have been times in history where we've been tougher on crime or more lax on crime, but three years where only 25% of the time, which is nine months, um, has to be served just seems completely, completely too little. However, um, Mr. Farnell, you know, the prosecutor who seemed to be 100% entirely believing that Clinton Waters was the murderer, he did state that when they took the plea deal in kind of an unusual case, he actually had her family sign the plea deal as well. You know, usually it's just the defense attorney representing the defendant, the prosecutor representing the prosecution. I'm not sure if the defendant himself has to sign it too, but he actually had the family sign it as well because he didn't want to, you know, take that deal without their okay. So it may have just been an understanding on both the attorney and the family's part that there probably was not ever going to be a time where there was much more evidence and that, you know, they really had to you know, kind of take the deal because there was too much of a risk that he would be found innocent and then never be tried again. 
So at least there is a little bit, and I say a little bit of comfort in knowing that her family did agree to the deal, but just that a person's life was worth nine to 12 months in prison if he was let out on parole early or only up to three years. That seems like so little for a life that she could have led, that she could have been there for her children, that she could have seen her grandchildren and maybe even great-grandchildren, and that they never had a chance to know her. And, you know, he got at the most three years served in prison. But now we're going to go back to something I said earlier, and it was about prison inmates suing um, the correctional institutions. Now, I, I've been very upfront in that I have had, you know, family members, friends who've been victims of violent crime, and myself included. I've also, you know, had family members who've worked in law enforcement and even a couple who've worked in correctional institutes or institutions and two of them have actually worked in the past at the um, location I'll be talking about today and that's a prison in Smyrna, Delaware. I just like to bring that up in the fact that I don't want anyone who may have not listened in the past and you know hasn't heard me discuss that um, you know, to show, that, okay, I, I have known people who've been victims of crime and where they're, in one case, the killer of one of the people that I loved who was murdered um, is serving time in this prison. So I just kind of want to put that out there at first in case it seems like there's any type of conflict. Um, but I think looking at this, I wasn't even thinking that he was serving time in the prison or about him specifically um, being in there, but just kind of in general. And then looking back at something that happened previously. So um, Smyrna, Delaware has a prison named James T. Vaughn. Um, and there is an inmate in there who was being who said he was unjustly punished and that his freedom of speech was suppressed. So the ACLU has filed a lawsuit against the prison. And for those who may be listening from outside of the United States, the ACLU is the American Civil Liberties Union, and they um, represent people who they feel have had their civil rights violated. And in this case, it was freedom of speech and that the prison had gone about retaliation in regards to this. Um, what occurred is an inmate named David Holloman had filed suit because he was going to start a boycott of the usage of tablets that were in the prison because of the fees that were charged on the, um, you know, on these tablets. So when I'm talking about tablets, I am talking about new technology tablets, not like getting writing implements and being able to write a letter. No, we are talking about actual, you know, electronic tablets that they can use. He wanted to boycott the company named Global Tell Link, which supplies the tablets and then, of course, administers the fees and provides the service that come along with having those tablets, and he was trying to get others involved. After that, he was placed in solitary confinement. And there's something also called good credits, which, um, you know, they could be used depending on, you know, whatever prison system you're in about possibly getting out early or getting, um, you know, some types of awards or rewards for, you know, having those credits, but those were all taken away from him. So he saw this as a form of retaliation. So possibly, yes, you could see it as retaliation. But there's two aspects that I want to touch on today. And first is just what exactly is the usage that the prisoners are getting with these tablets. And so there was a statement that the Department of Corrections put out 
which was a little bit lengthy, but it kind of explained why they were providing tablets to prisoners and what those tablets could be used for. And this will include also some figures um, such as the number of visits, messages, etc. that have been used on these tablets in Delaware. So the statement reads that, quote, the Department of Corrections recognizes and values the importance of communication between incarcerated individuals, their families, and other community supports. And thanks to investments in phone and tablet technology, incarcerated people today have more communication with community than ever before. Over a recent 12-month period, incarcerated individuals in Delaware placed 3.8 million phone calls, participated in 454,000 video visits, and sent or received 8.4 million text messages. Every one of these calls, video visits, and text messages keeps an incarcerated person engaged with people beyond our prison walls, and that gives him or her a higher quality of life, reduces tension in our facilities, and improves safety and security. Our phone and tablet system has been carefully designed with two goals in mind, to make cost affordable for incarcerated individuals and their families, while not imposing costs on Delaware taxpayers. Incarcerated individuals do not pay to purchase tablets and are not charged a monthly subscription fee for access to tablets or phones. Many tablet features are provided for free, including educational content, law library, and other informational, I'm sorry, informational and programming resources. Video visits, text messaging, and movies, music, and other entertainment are provided for a fee based on use. We note that a recent national survey of prison phone call rates validates our efforts to strike this balance, finding that the cost to make a phone call from a Delaware prison is the eighth lowest in the nation, and based on a 15-minute call, the cost in Delaware comes in at half the national average, end quote. So what this is basically saying is the Department of Corrections wants inmates to have the tablets to stay in contact with people outside of the prison, whether they be family and friends or other types of community resources that they can use and build up, especially for the time in which it comes after they're released. It also helps keep them busy, which in turn, you know, helps keep the prison a little bit of a safer place because, you know, like the old saying goes, this is just my take on it, you know, idols, idle hands are the devil's workshop. So, you know, basically if they're doing something, they're not necessarily thinking of negative things they can do. I'm sure there's limits on the tablets on what type of content is accessible, even if they pay for it. But there are lots of options that, you know, they can have without paying for them. Um, educational content, it didn't go into a lot of detail, but I saw something today about um, a prisoner in another state, though, who said that you know by the time she was going to get out, she'd be a genius because she could actually, she was learning how to speak another language, taking other types of studies. So if they're using the same company as this, then it sounds like they have quite an extensive catalog that they can access without actually, you know, paying for it. Now, there are some problems to this, which, you know, first is the fact that, especially if they've committed a violent crime, um, you know, if they've killed someone, then their family can never speak with that person again, that they'll miss out on times and memories that they could have had but never will, whereas someone who's in prison can, if their family can pay for them or if they have the money, they can dial up their family, friends, they can send messages and stay in contact with people, whereas the victim or victim's family may not be able to do so. And even if the crime was not murder, there is still trauma and, you know, even physical and emotional damage that goes far beyond the time of the crime. So even if the person had attacked someone and the victim did not die, that person still has to live with those memories 
of that for you know the rest of their life and you know speaking from experience and it took a long time to get over it when i would hear certain footsteps the sound of certain shoes on tile for a long time i would either freeze completely or i would panic so it's not something that just leaves someone once they've become the target of a criminal or have been attacked by someone. So that's got to be very disheartening in some ways to, you know, families um, or people who've been the victims of the incarcerated. You can also look at it too, as though not everybody in jail is a violent criminal. There could be more white collar crimes or um, property theft and damage charges that don't necessarily meet the term violent crime. And, they want to keep in touch with some, you know, some of their friends and family and their time in prison is probably going to be much less anyway. But the other thing too, is I'm, I'm kind of wondering if it could lead to discord amongst some of the prisoners, because within any, you know, group of people, you're going to have a range of people who have more money and who have less money. So you know, what if one person is better able to afford, you know, watching movies all the time, um, you know, being able to text message or have a video visit with their family, if they can afford to do it, say, five times more than another prisoner, uh, what's to say that that's not going to cause, you know, more feelings of tension, uh, discord amongst the prisoners there, and that can also lead to a number of different issues. But going back to the lawsuit, what about his freedom of speech? You know, the inmate um, Hollihan. Well, the second part of the equation, you know, so the first part was going over what the tablets actually do. The second part, though, is going back some years. And it's actually not that long ago. And this was the first thing that... I thought of James T. Vaughn Correctional Center in February of 2017 was the site of an 18-hour riot and siege where inmates took over the prison. One corrections officer was killed, others were injured, and others were held hostage. Lieutenant Stephen Floyd was killed during that time. I will have a whole episode on this riot so that I'm not getting too far into um, a lot of the details. You know, there were accusations that were made about prisoner treatment, which led to the riot, but it started out as a protest. It was supposed to be in most of the things I've read about, um, you know, the riot is that it was just supposed to be a protest, but things went out of control rather quickly. Um, I recently, just um, probably a few weeks ago, I saw an interview, and there was a 70-year-old woman who was a counselor at the prison, and she ended up being a hostage there. And just like in any field of profession, um, so while I said at the beginning I have family members in law enforcement and than correctional officers, I know that not every person who works in the prison is there to make sure that, you know, the prisoners are treated fairly and properly. They might be there for lack of any other better term as part of a power trip. I have seen and heard of those cases. So I know not every prison officer, um, every prison administrator is there necessarily for the good of the community and of the prison. At the same time, not every prisoner in the prison is bad, necessarily. Maybe they could have committed crimes. We don't know what their motivations always are. But there were also two prisoners interviewed who had stayed with that 70-year-old counselor and helped try to comfort her because they didn't want the riot either. They didn't want something like that to happen. So just as, you know, through all cross-sections of society, you're going to have two sides of each coin. You're going to have 
you know, extremes from one end of to the other. You're going to have people who are more peaceful, people who are more violent. You know, there was one um, of the inmates that had sat with her. He said he, he was trying to comfort her and he asked her, you know, what type of music she liked to listen to because he liked to sing. And she said, I like Christian rock. And he said, I don't know any of that, but I like gospel. And he sang with her, you know, so you know, there, there were just so many different ways to look at different things. And when I heard about the ACLU, um, you know, the recent filing, and I read about the reasons why, my first thought, though, was the riot in 2017 started with what was supposed to be something nonviolent. And I wonder if the prison officials may be in an extreme reaction, you know, reacted to the fact that they did not want something like this happen again, happening again, that they thought we don't want something getting out of control that's supposed to be for the good of the prisoners, that's supposed to be positive or proactive. We don't want that getting out of control, so we're putting him in solitary and we're taking away his credits. Maybe a better solution would have been sitting down with him and saying, I, I don't know if he was there at the time of the original riot in 2017 or at the, I shouldn't say original riot, but the riot in 2017. You know, but if he wasn't, maybe to have somebody sit down with him and try to have an open conversation about the concerns that he had and maybe explain as well as this is a situation we were in not too long ago, about six years ago, where there was going to be a protest and things went wildly out of control and we want to make sure everybody is protected. Would that have worked? I don't know. Nobody knows because that didn't happen. But now what we end up having is you know, the State Department of Corrections being sued, and we don't know what the outcome of that will be. It may have the best of intentions, but will that mean then some of the tablet access will be more limited? Because in order to make things fair and equitable, will, you know, everybody have the same amount of time on tablets, or will there be other ways to pay for them? On the other hand, does that mean, you know, if there's more access to the tablets. If they go in that direction with more access, will the taxpayer have to end up paying more? So things aren't always so simple as far as just saying, yes, this was right. Yes, this was wrong. You know, I, I personally just with anything as far as um, say having a tablet, first you do have to worry about the type of content that can be accessed especially with certain inmates, um, you know, certain types of content um, can be very triggering for them, um, may, you know, actually end up being more harmful than beneficial. So I really hope there's very stringent guards on, you know, any of those tablets. But, you know, again, there are people who are out there working two jobs, who sometimes can't afford to have a fast internet connection. They might have to rely on their phone to, you know, stream things and watch things because that's the bill they have to choose to pay. And since they need a phone for communication, okay, they'll just pay that. They won't have internet access, access in the house as far as like, you know, a Wi-Fi um, network or anything like that. They just rely on their phones, which sometimes, at least where I live, I can't go out to my dad's and have good reception. I will lose phone calls. So just around here, a cell phone's not always even going to connect. And that's just one example, you know, that a lot of people who are out there working hard, paying taxes, you know, they, they have fewer options possibly even than some of the prisoners. And so then how would they feel necessarily about, um, you know, having someone that they're paying taxpayer money towards, you know, a prisoner, have them have access to tablets that they may not necessarily have access to themselves. So there's lots of questions. I just kind of wanted to bring this case up. I read about it a little while back, but... Um, you know, I wasn't really sure 
where to put it into an episode or when because it's a rather short episode unless I wanted to do the the James T. Vaughn riot episode and that's going to be probably quite extensive and we'll have to be working on that you know a little bit over time so I'll be you know working on that a little bit time you know and I've done some more research while I was even looking up um you know about this case for the ACLU um looking back on information from that so just kind of a thought you know if you have any thoughts drop that into the comments on YouTube or if you have an app that allows you or your you know how you listen to podcasts if that allows you to leave a comment um also just real quickly um I'm working on the episode, or I've worked on the episode about Virginia's case and about the lack of evidence. Um, I'm working on another episode for the other podcast I have, which I have not actually been able to get an episode out for the past couple months on that one. But if you think that listening to this case with the little evidence that there was might have made you think about whether or not it should have even gone to trial. The case that I'll be discussing on the other podcast, and I'll probably finish that within the next week, will actually, you won't even know if a murder's taken place. And not only that, the um, murder victim gives in-person testimony, maybe, supposedly, possibly. This took place in the 1920s, so... There's a lot of things that we will never know because it happened so long ago. But in this case, they still went to trial, even though they didn't know the murder had taken place. And they had a man claiming to be the murder victim standing right in front of them. So the link to that podcast, which has quite a title, Mystifyingly Missing True Crime and Thought-Provoking Events, um will be in the description if you want to take a listen to that within the next week or, um, you know, if you want to listen to any of the previous episodes. But yeah, while I was um, recording this, because I actually hadn't even thought of the two having, you know, that kind of commonality, that there really was a lack of evidence in both of them. I just kind of wanted to throw that in there in case you would be interested in that case, which is known by a couple of different names, but the best is the Arkansas Ghost Trial, um, which is why I was kind of drawn to it um, when I first saw that title. I thought it was going to say that, you know, they actually had, you know, supposedly a recording or something like that of the person claiming to be a ghost. Then when I saw the the age of the trial, I really wouldn't think that that was something they could have done so no it was actually something quite a bit differently or different than that so um i think it'll be pretty interesting if you wanted to take a listen to that uh i will have the next episode out within the next two or three weeks i you know i always want to try to get them out sooner rather than later so if i can i will but you know i would anticipate the next two to three weeks and I hope everybody has, you know, found some of the content and thoughts in this episode interesting. And I will talk to everybody soon. Bye.